Hello everyone and welcome to episode 17 of the Switch Focus podcast. I'm Andy Memory Hunter Corrigan. With me as always are the mountain climbing, jumping Ginny Woo and the bloody and broken Andrew Brown. How are you guys? Um, I'm not bloody and broken, so counting my blessings, I guess. I don't know about Andrew. <laughs> my life is pain. <laughs> uh, so, we'll go on to updates from last week. I'll make a start. Uh, I am pleased to announce I beat Pokken. Woo! Uh, I uh, finally broke into the top eight of the Chroma League, smashed the tourney, and then beat the final trainer, and got the credits rolling at the end. Um, while I think the story should have been a bit easier to see out, uh, and as frustrated as I got, and I think I alluded to this in the last episode, I love the process of hitting a brick wall of difficulty and then breaking through it with nothing else but persistence, and in this case a little bit of luck mm. on one of those last sets of uh, league matches. Uh, that said, I'm not sure I'm going to be bothered with the Iron League that it unlocked just after the credits rolled. I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> uh, instead, of, instead of being hitting the online mode, uh, which I thought for sure was going to be dead by this point, but uh, I've not had to wait long at all for fights, and the netcode seems pretty flawless. I've not had any issues with lag or button delay. And it's kind of, the fights are fun, I'm seeing a lot of tactics I hadn't seen or thought about in the offline mode, so I think I'm going to keep plugging at it for a while, or at least until SNK Tag Team Heroin drops, because um, that just looks boss, and I think I'll just drop Pokken for that as soon as it comes out. Which Pokemon were you using? Yeah. Uh, Lucario yep. was my main. <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> and mainly just because he was the most, like, Hihachi from Tekken. I picked him because I looked at him and was like, I understand how this character would work in a fighter, but if, like you show me like, yeah, who else is in that? Like, like the the chandelier ghost one. I was like, how's that gonna work? I I can't even put my head around it. And he was my nemesis in that Chrome League in the final set. Jesus. Yeah, I found him quite hard, and I was playing Suicune, so that was not nice at all. Now, although I'm really looking forward to Tag Team Heroines, I just wonder whether it's got enough mass appeal for the online community to stay as active as long as this one, because Pokemon's big news, obviously. I still think that'll win the fight, even as a two-year-old game. I think SNK will draw a slightly different, perhaps more mature crowd um, based on the subject matter. Um, I mean, that may well lead to active service too, but I think it's good that Pocket Online play is still great, because I haven't done online in quite a while. Um, so I guess only time will tell, but I might still play both. And I've been watching a bit of um, King of Fighters 15 on Evo Japan this weekend, and yeah, that's got me really hyped for Tag Team Heroines. So nice. Yeah, bring that on. Um, the, other, the other thing I did was I've still been plugging away at Rayman Legends, which is my damn I need a change game. I'm about halfway through it now, uh, not including... Damn's fine. Leo Plot may not agree the, the kiddies would hear that in church It's fine <laughs> uh, But yeah, uh, not including the Origins uh, levels I'm probably about halfway through I think I'm going to pick that back up After I've done with another game I'm going to talk about In a bit um, I think I achieved what I wanted um, Which was mainly to crack into Lost Sphere 
and check out a bunch of the other platforms that were going to come out. So um, I have checked out Shu and Celeste, which I obviously will talk about a little bit later on. Um, so everything in order, I suppose. I don't want to spoil what we're talking about, so I'm just going to keep it brief here. I've only played new games these since our last recording, so I have no updates to provide. So it's been a bit of a slow news week this week for Switch stuff. A uh, couple of game announcements, nothing that we want to talk about in depth really, so we're just going to skip on to the new releases. So the first game on the list we've got here is Darkest Dungeon. Now I think technically that came out last week, but Andrew's been playing quite a lot of it. I know he's a big fan. Hey, I bought it. You're cutting into my thing. Go ahead. <laughs> I've bought it. I'm probably not going to get to it for a while. Um, so why don't you take this one? Okay, well, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, then you know a long, long time ago, back when we were all in diapers and we had just started this podcast, we talked about games that we want to come to the Switch. And one of the games I asked for was Darkest Dungeon, so you can imagine my delight when it was revealed that it was coming and it finally came out about just over a week ago now. Darkest Dungeon, how could I even summarize this game? Because it is such a complicated monster of a thing. But basically, it's one half RPG where you recruit a band of adventurers to go into this estate that you've inherited from some ancestor of yours and he was digging into the worst sorts of magic impossible so he's basically infested his property with all kinds of monsters and just mutants and terrible horrible people that you can imagine and you've got to train up an army of adventurers to go in and fight back the evil and that's only half the game because the other half is you have a town that you have to manage because all those adventurers when they go into the dungeon they develop bad aspects like they might develop kleptomania or they might develop claustrophobia and you've got to provide for them in town the means to recover from these maladies and a little bit later on we'll talk about that aspect of the game because it's kind of controversial but that is basically Darkest Dungeon in a nutshell although it's way more complicated than any of that now Darkest Dungeon I think is uh, an incredible game and it's also very memorable for two reasons that's the visual design first and foremost because it's actually graphically a very simple game almost everything is represented by a still image uh, there is a slight, like, active uh, animation that each character has, which I think anybody who's played an RPG is familiar with. When the character's turn is ready, they'll start, like, bouncing in place. There's that going on, but almost everything else in the game is just represented by a still image that kind of pans by while it's happening. So it creates this very distinct visual design that makes it stand out from almost everything else that's out there on the market. And also... The narration. The narration, which is provided by an actor named Wayne June, who voices your ancestor and narrates almost everything that you do, is incredible, and it's really memorable. I would put it up there with GLaDOS from Portal, as far as 
narration that just makes a game what it is. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> I cannot gush about these aspects of the game enough. Now, if you've heard about Darkest Dungeon, probably the thing you've heard about it the most is the difficulty. I have to say its difficulty is overstated. Uh, I don't want to say that the game is easy, but it's also not a game that if you sneeze wrong, you will die. That is not true. Uh, but it is a game that requires a lot of effort and a lot of time to be invested into it if you want to beat it. And you're going to make mistakes, and it's going to punish you for those mistakes. That is true. Uh, but it's better to say that it's not hard. It's better to say that it doesn't want to give you easy victories. Like If you go on my Twitter timeline, I posted a picture of a successful dungeon run I had where everybody in my party had zero hit points, and <laughs> that is considered a successful run because you completed the dungeon and nobody died. That's a very successful run when you're doing the advanced stuff in the game. As to negative parts of the game, things I don't feel so strongly about, the controls... Uh, this game was originally a PC game, and it's been adapted for consoles since. It came to PlayStation Network first, and now it's on the Switch as well as other platforms. Uh, and the controls are a mess. Uh, I, I think I played Darkest Dungeon the most on the Vita. Uh, Darkest Dungeon is actually the reason I own a Vita, because I really wanted to play it portably. But you have to hold down shoulder buttons to access different menus, and the user interface is really small, really tiny. It's just scaled down from a full-sized uh, screen image. It's not actually redesigned for a, a portable screen. So uh, you, if you have vision problems, you might have a problem playing this game undocked, just as a warning. Uh, and also, the longer you play it, the more time you have to spend in town doing all the management sim stuff that can weigh the game down and makes it very wearying to play over long periods of time. You maybe want to do just one dungeon run a day, because if you play for like four or five hours at a time, you're going to get sick of juggling through all the menus. Now, there is one part of Darkest Dungeon which is controversial. Uh, it's been criticized, uh, I think very fairly, and that's how it portrays uh, mental illness and how mental illness affects people and the way it can be dealt with and uh, how you even develop mental illness in the first place. I could have tried to talk about this, but I asked a friend of mine, his name is Alex Samoyalov, he's written about this a lot more than I have, so I asked him to just dash off a couple paragraphs about it, which I'm going to read now. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Alex underscore S, that's A-L-E-K-S, and he says... Darkest Dungeon tries to dodge the pitfalls of Lovecraftian sanity mechanics by renaming things, stress instead of sanity, quirks, and so forth. But while this seems intentional and admirable, this is the thematic equivalent of a palette swap. The changes are ultimately superficial, the core problems of sanity mechanics and the Lovecraftian portrayal of madness are still there. The big one is that such mechanics and portrayals tend to simultaneously trivialize, misrepresent, and reify mental illness and trauma further contributing to stigma and othering. This isn't helped by the fact that different adventurers are literally interchangeable and expendable. It's hard to feel attached to one particular plague doctor or vestal over another, or by the way the sanatorium screen reflects pernicious asylum horror tropes. 
choosing to include some real-life conditions, gambling addiction, for example, that are often comorbid with mental illness, is also dodgy. What he's saying there is gambling addiction is not as bad as as schizophrenia. The way it happens to people is not the same thing, and presenting them as equivalent, and all you have to do is spend some time in a mental hospital, we'll get rid of it. It's not it's not great. So that having been said, I do like the game and can see that Red Hook gave this some thought. I don't think stress slash trauma mechanics are ultimately bad in themselves, but they're easily colored by the context in which they're used, which in this case doesn't work in the game's favor. So basically, the things that happen in this game are mechanics. Don't take them to be true and play it with a critical eye. Don't, don't use Darkest Dungeon as your baseline for mental illness opinion. So I've got a couple of questions about it. Mm-hmm. Shoot. Um, first up, the stress mechanic. So this sounds a lot like the uh, GameCube game. Was it Eternal Darkness? It's very similar, yes. So it plays out in a similar way, or well, does it affect the things the characters see, or the, the enemies they encounter, that sort of thing? No, every character has two... I, I, sh- I could have explained this at the start, but I was trying to keep my explanation very simple. But every character has two meters. They have a hit point meter, which starts off like at 100%, and they have a stress meter that starts at 0%. And if you get your hit point meter drained, you don't actually die right away. Your character just goes into a, uh, a death's door state, where they then have a death blow resist percentage, and every time they get hit when they're in the death's door state they have a chance of dying or not dying. So that's how, like, even if you have everybody at zero hit points, you're, you're not necessarily dead yet. Uh, and then the stress meter starts at 0%, and depending upon what happens to them while they're in the dungeon, the things they interact with or the monsters they encounter, their stress meter raises. When their stress gets to 100%, then they will enter a hopeless state where they will develop different negative aspects like uh one character might become verbally abusive and start screaming at everybody else in the party which raises their stress in turn so basically once one person reaches 100 percent stress then your run is going to get much more difficult uh, and if they get to 200 percent stress they have a heart attack and they instantly die oh yeah Ooh, <laughs> uh, pretty final yeah. It's not um, as hard to deal with as it sounds like, because uh, when they go back to town, you can send them off to the tavern or to the church to recover their stress. But that is the main management sim aspect of the game, is managing all of your characters' stress after each dungeon run. The other question I had was, um, the way the death mechanic works seems to sound a lot like how it works in Dungeons & Dragons, where zero hit points doesn't automatically mean death and you get a chance to, to resurrect... Um, in fact, my uh, DM from my D&D game sort of has recommended this to me quite a lot, saying if I like D&D, I'll probably like this. So how Have you played D&D? Do you think it's a comparable experience? Obviously, it's not going to capture the same mechanics or the same storytelling, but is it is there like a, a ballpark connection there? Or It sounds like your friend knows about more of this more than I do. Uh, don't be fooled by the way I behave on this podcast and the way I behave on Twitter. I am an antisocial little gremlin, so I've never played Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> before. Um, Andrew will know that I've been on the fence about this one for a while because I think the aesthetic is really captivating. It's a beautiful and, game, um, yeah. Yeah, it looks great. Like I, th- I think I commented on a video that he shared and I, and I went, you know, I really want this, I need this. And hearing more about it um, and having these 
mechanical similarities to stuff like D&D. So I play a lot of D&D. So to me, this is very appealing. But for me, it's just, I think, a bit daunting in terms of the time sync aspect of it. Because I'm currently juggling a bunch of large games like um, Lost Sphere, for example, and kind of plowing through all these other smaller platforming games. I'm kind of loath to start it until I can sort of fully focus on it. Which might be a pipe dream because we do a weekly podcast about the latest <laughs> Switch releases. Um, but this definitely is on the cards for me, just probably not right this moment. Well, I think the earlier you invest in this, the better. Because, you reckon? Yeah. Mm, because, like, okay. as I said, it's better if you play this game slowly and over a great deal of time. Like, you know how Animal Crossing wants you to play for a few minutes every day? Yep. That's Darkest Dungeon. Like, uh, okay. I think if if you bought this game and you were like, I'm going to beat this, I'm going to beat this fast, this is a game that takes, uh, I've read, I've never actually finished it myself. I've played it a lot, but I've never finished it. But I've read successful first runs can be 100 plus hours. So oh if, this is a, if this is a game you're planning to marathon, you are going to be exhausted by the time you're done, and you're probably going to hate the game by then. So I definitely recommend if this is a game that interests you, pick it up play it for maybe an hour a day and then move on to something else okay yeah i read about i read about 50 hours in terms of game length for seeing the story through um so let's let's move on though um going from one hard game to another uh celeste now i've had a roller coaster of a week where <laughs> i this game i said in our nintendo mini catch-up was not on my radar really i've spent all week wavering on Monster Hunter World on PS4, on Dragon Ball Fighter Z or Fighters, however you want to say that. I've gone back and forth. The cats in Monster Hunter nearly pulled me in, and the art style in Dragon Ball Z, despite not being a Dragon Ball fan. And I was holding firm on Celeste until everyone got their hands on it and was singing its praises from the mountaintops. And I started taunting you with gifts. (laughs) Yes, in our awesome Discord group, hey guys, uh, where everyone was taunting me into getting it, I decided to buy it. Now, I don't feel right playing it yet until I've beaten Rayman again, but yeah, so I'll let you guys do the bulk of talking nice, but I believe both of you are massive fans. Yes, I love it. Um... As people will know if you've been following me on Twitter or talking to me in our Discord, which we will include in the show notes later, um, I was a little bit burned by another platformer that I played earlier in the week. And so I think Andrew picked up Celeste first, and I was kind of on the fence that do I really want to play another platformer after this other one was a little bit disappointing? You know, do I really want to commit to that higher price point? Um, but I caved because I am an impulse purchaser. And I have very bad self-control. Um, and I'm very glad that I did actually cave. So um, you sort of play as um, a girl who is mountain climbing. Um, your name is Madeline. Um, by default, you can change that, obviously. And you are basically doing one long climb of a mountain that has a lot of significance to you, um, to your history, to your story, um, which I won't spoil. It is a little bit sparse, but I want to kind of keep... Um, the experience as organic as possible for those that might want to play after a podcast so I won't say much but you are a spunky little mountain climber um, and your job is to climb a very 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 large and dangerous mountain so first of all for me I think it was the music and the tactile controls that really drew me in 
um, even so, sort of small things like the screen shifts when you move around the map if you do like a, a dash or something the screen will shudder a bit like your movements feel like give a lot of impact um, it is a very tough Oh, not very tough, but it is a decently tough platformer that has mechanics like wall hugging, wall jumping, and dashes. So they will kind of save you from oh crap moments, but I think it does have quite an element of difficulty there that is kind of core to its mechanic and its enjoyability. Um, however, if you're not good at platforming, um, you may not have the reflexes for it, it might not just be your thing, you might want to just kind of cruise along with the story. There is a really good accessibility mode in this game which has made the rounds on Twitter because I think just of how well it handles it. But basically you get things like invincibility, extensions to mobility uh, mechanics, and even the way to slow the game down. Um, I think overall it is a great game. It's a very charming game. Um, and I think Andrew will echo this as well, but just it feels really good to play. It feels very rewarding and very satisfying when you nail perfect jumps or you sort of time things just right and the levels are short but challenging, so I think it's got a very satisfying gameplay loop. I highly recommend it. Um, I'm sure Andrew will bring up more stuff about it that he loves that I haven't covered yet. But all in all, if you like sort of like a very cute kind of pixely aesthetic, um, interesting music, and if you just like platforming in general, this is the purchase for you. I know there are tons of other platformers out there this week, but Celeste is kind of by far my favorite one. I picked this up Thursday when it came out, and I beat it more or less in one sitting. And I think I broke my thumb. <laughs> yeah, the next day at work, my all Friday, actually, not even just at work. The next day, all Friday, my thumb was totally numb. I I could touch it, and I would feel like those this weird tingling sensation. Like, uh. oh no, uh, I guess I haven't played a, a game with the D-pad primarily in many a year, and my hand was letting me know. But that just speaks to how much I loved Celeste, because I was telling myself, I have work in the morning, I need to go to sleep, and I just kept playing because I just wanted to finish it. And I did finish it. Uh, this is a game made by Matt Thorson of Matt Makes Games. I have since been informed that Matt Thorson actually made the game which inspired Super Meat Boy, which is going to make a lot of the things that I've said about Celeste in the past day uh, a little anachronistic and backwards, but oh well. Because uh, I could not stop comparing Celeste to Super Meat Boy. Uh, I played Super Meat Boy. I liked it, but I didn't love it because everything felt like a video game to me. Everything felt like just an obstacle course that I was supposed to maneuver to finish the game. I didn't really think of it as characters that I cared about what happened to them and a world that felt like it was real. Celeste definitely has those things. So for a person like me who looks for those things in video games, Celeste drew me in much more. But I don't mean to say that Celeste is not like Super Meat Boy because it is. They are both, I would think, part of the massacre genre, which is a portmanteau of the words masochist and hardcore. So that kind of gives you an idea of the kind of platformer that they are. They are very hard. I would say Celeste is easier than Super Meat Boy, but I also enjoyed Celeste much more. And this goes towards the conversation about difficulty, which is really happening 
in the video game sphere right now, especially around the Dark Souls game. Or like, what do you guys think? Do you think that a Massacre game having those accessibility options detracts from what the game is? Um, I don't think so personally. Um, I mean, I personally wouldn't use the accessibility option, but yeah, I, I don't did, think I it will either. distract from my experience because I can just play on normal or hard or lunatic or whatever it is the difficulty modes are that I usually play on. I think to have it there especially if the game's premise or a big focus of the game is not just the fighting but things like the story and the narrative like it is in Bloodborne for example I think it's fair to have um, a mode that makes it a bit easier so that people that might not be quite up to scratch in that area can still experience all the other good things about the game without being kind of discouraged by by difficulty so Mm -hmm. it doesn't detract from my experience because obviously I don't have to I'm not forced to use that game mode but Mm -hmm. if it can open up a good game to an audience that might not have played it before, then I'm all for it. I see both sides of this argument. So mm. I think in, in something like Celeste, it's fine. It's not hurting anyone. But in terms of the, the Soul series or Bloodborne, I'm thinking that that, that um, process of, like I talked about with Pokken, hitting a brick wall and working at it until you can do it is a large part of the experience. And I feel like that's a large, also a large part of the director's vision for the game and how you interact with the world so I think it would detract slightly from being in Dark Souls however would I complain if it was there or be upset not a chance I just wouldn't use it but yeah I, I sort of sit in the middle of that it depends on what the game director is trying to set for his audience or his or her audience sorry yeah I, I'm of the same position I think as Ginny uh, where I'm glad the accessibility options are there you can change the speed at which the game runs if uh, if the timing on the jumps is just a little bit beyond you, you can actually slow the game down by a certain percentage so it's easier to pull off those uh, pixel-perfect jumps, and also you can increase the number of dashes you can use. Normally, it's a a big breakthrough in the game when you actually get the ability to use a second dash in midair, but if you want to, right from the start, you can use as many as you want. So uh, I guess I'm a little critical of that because that actually does break the story a little bit, mm. but... Uh, I, I'm glad the accessibility options are there, and it even goes much further past the accessibility. Uh, there are unlockable B-side versions of the levels you can find, which I haven't had the chance to play any of them yet, but from what I've heard, they are some of the hardest platforming stuff that's out there right now. I've seen like one person who said they've actually finished one of the B-side levels. Maybe that's just because people haven't had time to t- play them yet, because the game did just come out on Thursday. But... I'm glad that those are there. And also, in every level, there are just dozens and dozens of strawberries hidden everywhere. The strawberries mm. unlock absolutely nothing. Uh, <laughs> it's it's just for bragging rights to say how many you have. I got 143. How many did you get? Uh, and the strawberries were hard to get to. Uh, but I didn't find them impossible to get to like a a lot of the bandages and super meat boy after a while is just like i'm not having fun trying to get these things so i just i started ignoring them and celeste whenever i saw a strawberry i wanted to reach it and there was not a single strawberry i saw that i wanted to get that i was not able to get if i just tried so i i am i think celeste is just absolutely perfect as far as meeting the expectations of the genre and also providing 
ease and accessibility to an audience who might not normally play this game. I I am thrilled with Celeste. I highly recommend it. Oh, and his sales tactic was part of why I bought into it. <laughs> um, so let's move on. So this is probably what I'm going to call, quote, unquote, the big game for the week, uh, which was Lost Sphere, uh, with a terrible spelling of Sphere. <laughs> Uh, long-time listeners will know that I am a huge fan of Tokyo RPG Factory's previous game, I Am Setsuna, which I ploughed through shortly after the Switch launched, and I have been hyped for Lost Sphere ever since it was announced. Uh, so for the uninitiated, Tokyo RPG Factory specialise in retro-styled, but also streamlined JRPG experiences. They're not grindy, they're relatively short for this genre, I'm talking 20 to 30 hours, not 100 uh, the systems are scaled back and simplified, and the focus is on the story and the writing. Uh, so far, I'm about 20 hours in. I've got there over like three days all up. Uh, and the story is very interesting. So it takes part in a world where portions of the world are disappearing and being replaced by like a white static. Uh, and the main character, a guy called Kanata, is able to restore these areas by recovering memories and then applying them to the these uh, key points. This means finding places with strong links to those areas, battling whatever foe is there, and then recovering the means to restore. So for example, the first place to disappear is Kanata's hometown of Elgarth, and to recover it, he and the party travel to a place that was important to the town's founder to recover his memories. Uh, after that, they get embroiled in with the Empire, who sort of rule the whole region, and then from there, there's these superb moral shades of grey from all parties, even the bad guys, and it's it's really well done. Uh, the recovering lost areas thing kind of reminds me a bit of Ubisoft games. So large parts of the world map are lost, and uh, you recover them by creating artifacts in these areas. And if you've, you can do that if you found enough of the right type of memories, and then this opens up more parts of the world map to explore. Now the cool thing is these artifacts offer side effects that have ramifications on the entire game. So you can choose to create an artifact that causes enemy health bars to display. Or you can create one that boosts the walking speed on the world map. Or, or one that improves how critical hits work. Uh, and how you prioritise these is up to you. And there's some that are stackable so you can keep boosting the benefits they give you. Uh, and you can even go back and change them if something isn't really working for you. I don't want to go too deeply into it, but the characters so far are really well written and relatable. Uh, Kanata has more personality than Endia from My Am Sitsuna, but it's still written with a, a certain amount of restraint so that the player can easily step into his shoes. Uh, meanwhile, Locke is brilliant, impulsive, argumentative and childish, but completely endearing. And as a result, I can't wait to see where a lot of these arcs go. How are you finding the story so far, Ginny? I think you're a little way behind me. I think I'm quite a ways behind you. Um, I've only just clocked um, the first boss. Um, so quite a few ways. So I've really only sort of recently been introduced to Locke and Lumina and um, to the other party member um, that joins. Um, I'm finding the combat really good. Um, so like Andy I was a huge I Am Setsuna fan plowed through it pretty much when it came out on the Switch um, and I just sort of love JRPGs in general so stuff like Xenoblade Chronicles 2 and all that really scratches my itch so 
when I heard about Lost Sphere and I heard that it was being touted as like the spiritual successor to I Am Setsuna, I was very, very excited. Um, I think that the two games uh, obviously come from the same sort of brain. Um, they're all very inspired by one another. I found the combat systems and the menus kind of instantly recognizable as sort of Tokyo RPG style. Um, and for me, as it was for Andy, the story was a huge draw. So um, I find that sort of idea of sort of discovering um, discovering parts of history that have been lost very interesting. Uh, when I played games like Horizon Zero Dawn, for example, seeing all the lost parts of human history um, was some of my favorite bits, seeing how Earth had changed in the aftermath and stuff like that. So, I mean, here, immediately the premise was very gripping. And for me, I also enjoy um, hacking at things and shooting at things in most of my games. So for the combat to be good was also another huge plus for me. Um, it feels a lot more, I don't want to say organic, but it feels like everything flows a little bit quicker um, in Lost Fear than, than it did in I Am Setsuna. Um, the enemies and everything, they look very, very similar. So if you've played I Am Setsuna, this will be a trip down memory lane, I think. Um, but I think it's a game that is just different enough from I Am Setsuna that it avoids treading known ground. Um, I find the music really great. That was probably one of my favorite things. Um, I Am Setsuna had a very sort of very minimal piano only sort of like tinkly bell sort of music. Um, the way it is here, it suits. Um, it kind of feels very melancholic which I think is sufficient if you're playing a game about a world that's essentially dying and that people are forgetting about. So I don't want to ramble on too much here, but just in terms of how I think the game has built on what I Am Setsuna had given us, I am really enjoying it. Did you like stuff like the music and the combat, Andy, or was it sort of just like a narrative draw for you from the start? Uh, well, there's two points to this. So the music uh, I've got down in my notes here was that it's it's really nice i really like it but it's incredibly safe for the genre so i am setsuna's soundtrack was completely faultless but it was also really bold because it was all piano yeah i still have that soundtrack on my ipod it's a go-to for me when i'm writing um like this isn't bad at all it's pretty it's atmospheric it's just nothing has stood out in the same way like i've, I've got no standout tracks that have just made me go wow i need to buy this mm. um that said it's reminding me a lot of the Child of Light soundtrack so it can't be all that bad because I love that too um, in terms of the combat it's a definite step up from Setsuna it's more tactical for sure um, like Setsuna it still focuses on area of effect however they they make a lot better use of it allowing you to move your character around or their attack area uh, move that around the battlefield for for better range or to take out more enemies than just one but I do have one criticism. You've probably not got to the Volco suits yet. No, I have not. But I played them in the um, in the demo, so I know what they do and I know what they look like. So I've I've got them. Mm -hmm. I got past the demo section, and <laughs> um, they go a surprisingly long time without giving them to you. Uh, and since I I've got them, I barely known when to use them best outside uh -huh. of exploration, like breaking large boulders and things yeah um i've got through most of the boss fights without them at all uh i mean they offer better protection they boost skills but you can't do standard 
standard attacks with them, only co-op ones, mm-hmm. and they take forever to charge. So if you run out of magic power, they're literally next to useless, and an enemy can just wail on you while you're stuck on the menu. So if I've used them at all, it's been for like one round in a fight, and then I ditch them really quickly. It's fair to say that I probably just haven't figured out how to use them properly. There are some additional powers you can get from them that I won't go into because it's a bit spoilerish. Mm-hmm. Uh, but maybe at some point I'm going to have to be absolutely forced to use it and then that'll be my breakthrough. I'm not sure. Um, but there's some other things I want to talk about. Just, just a lot of little things that I really appreciate about this game. And some of it extends back to Setsuna too. Because it's just things that Tokyo RPG Factory just seem to get perfect when trying to go for this like retro vibe. So like I love how interiors are cutouts in the shape of buildings with a lot of black space around the edges, which takes me right back to Final Fantasy VII and being in Avalanche's hideout for the first time. Mm. I love how because of the low polygonal character models, they have to use exaggerated animations to get across character emotions, such as like crouching and arm shaking for anger, or a dismissive arm wave, or just a sh- you know dramatic shake of the head when they're disagreeing with someone. Little things like that really float my nostalgia boat. It's really great. Now, what I, what I wanted to talk about was I'm completely aware that this game hasn't reviewed amazingly. Yeah. <laughs> but then neither did I am Sitsuna. And that also definitely feels like it's one that's more fondly remembered by those that played it by those uh, than those that reviewed it. Uh, like a few of the Are you suggesting people I... who reviewed it didn't play it? <laughs> no, no, not at all. I'm just saying that those people didn't like it and I think the wider audience for it will come away a bit more positively, maybe without the pressures of review. Like a few of the reviews I read mentioned the fact that it's a throwback to old school JRPGs as if that's a negative thing. Mm. But that's the developer's aim. It's kind of the point. Yeah. Um, and in both those cases, I, I feel like they're completely achieving what they set out to do and they do it well. Um, that, of course, isn't going to work for everyone. Uh, but I think again this will be another one that's more fondly remembered by the general population and fans of the genre than than reviewers um, and it does seem like folks are desperate to dump on it for some reason like the day before I was due to pick up my pre-order I expressed my excitement for it on Twitter you know as I do uh, and I, I ended up talking through this direction with two friends and then someone just jumped into my feed randomly to ruin my buzz which is just not cool yeah sorry I, I drank a lot that night <laughs> no, no, it wasn't Andrew. It was a, it was a, a complete random. Who was all? Hey, well, I played the demo and I thought it was awful. Oh, uh, thank you, random like, stranger. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what my note says here. Thank you, random <laughs> internet man. Yeah. Uh, you know, he wasn't insightful. It was just to start start an argument on the internet, and I was like, I played the demo and it made me want to play it more. Mm. And then he kept trying to bait me into an argument, tagging all three of us. So I messaged my friends and to ask if they knew him and none, none of them did oh my so God. he's literally searching twitter to start fights with people about losphere and then i thought it had dropped and then when ign's review came out which was a 6.7 which is okay as well by the way not awful uh he couldn't wait to link it to me <laughs> again completely unsolicited and he was like ouch i'm glad i didn't pre-order and i'm like dude it's one review it's one opinion and sometimes I'll change my mind on when you know when a review drops and it's negative. However, usually once I've decided that I want to play something, regardless of its reception, I'm just going to play it because I like to form my own opinions because I'm not a robot. 
You should anyway. try being a robot. It's great. Uh, I, I wouldn't mind so much if they did it, if it was someone I knew and they were doing it conversationally. Like, oh, hey, I, I didn't like this. But yeah, just as a gen- general advice for people, don't do that. Don't see that someone you don't know is excited for a thing and just try and dump all over it. Don't be that guy. Yeah. Basically, I ignored the reviews and I've spent 20 hours so far playing a game that I've really enjoyed. So that's about the, the long of short of that. Now, on to games that we might not have enjoyed. Um, I haven't had any experience with this one, but Shoe. Shoe. Ginny, you've been, yeah. you've been playing this one? I've played Shoe. Um, I think Andrew was looking at playing it um, to give a contrast to my opinion on it. I don't know if you ever got around to actually trying it out, though. Not enough time. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. While, um, while Andrew was slaying Lovecraftian horrors in Darkest Dungeon, I was a bird butterfly in Shoe. Um, I say bird butterfly because I literally can't think of any other way to better describe what the character looks like. Um, and before I launched into any feedback, the game is a good looking game. It is actually quite beautiful. The environments look great. They're very interactive. They respond to you. Um, even when they're being destroyed um, during the course of the game, everything looks beautiful. So this is not like an aesthetic critique. I, I love the way the game looks. And conceptually... Um, I should also enjoy it. Um, so it is a platforming game, but it is much, much, much more low-key than Celeste. So if you think Celeste is a game that has momentum and is exciting and keeps you on your toes, um, Shu kind of feels more like you're leaning back in your chair at the nursing home um, having a cup of tea. Um, this is not just a difficulty thing. Um, I obviously am not just saying the game is not interesting because it's not hard. Um, often I've I honestly really don't care about difficulty mechanics if a game is beautiful and it plays well and has some sort of narrative and it's interactive then I will love the game regardless of whether or not it's quote unquote traditionally easy um, just the thing was true though um, despite being beautiful um, having a story that is understandable coherent and thematically kind of fits in with the level design it's just not I just wasn't very engaged by it personally um, I there were some mild challenges in the platforming, which was fine. Um, but every level um, sort of just felt like a, a reskin of the previous one. Like they'd introduced sort of one element um, after another, after another, um, very slowly to get you used to what the game plays like. But I think that was just a little bit too slow. So. Um, I know that games often do this when they try and help you learn mechanics, right? They're like, okay, you can double jump here, you can fly in this level, you can run and hide in this level, and then you kind of build on it, and you build on it, and you build on it. But I think it's just... The, there are not that many mechanics available to you. Um, you can fly, um, you can jump. By fly, I mean more of a, a extended glide from a higher place. Um, you can ride on air currents by gliding and jumping... Um, there are springs, there are things that you have to outrun, um, and that's sort of really the extent of the buffet of mechanics for this game. So while it, it looks great, it feels great, I actually thought, like Andy, that it would be a bit like Rayman. It is really not like Rayman at all. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, I was gonna I was gonna say because I I had a quick look at it because the uh, store icon art looked really appealing, yeah. and I watched the trailer and I, I couldn't help but think how much it looked like Rayman, like the way you trans- uh, traverse the abilities, the level design. Yeah. Um, but I only just picked up Rayman, uh, and I probably won't bother with this. Yeah, unfortunately, it might look like Rayman from the trailers, but the way you move around the levels, um, your abilities. Um, all those are really quite gated compared to what you get to do in Rayman Legends. Um, so if you're after a platformer that is not as intense as Celeste or other ones like Super One More Jump, which we will talk about later on, um, if you think that aesthetic is the most important thing and you want like a really, really low-key platformer, you're keen to just sort of not really have a game to blow through but just kind of play a game in your downtime, Shrew might be the one for you. It was quite relaxing. Um, but I just didn't really quite scratch the entertainment itch that I like to get out of playing a platformer. So it's a no from me. Sorry. Now, we're just going to breeze through a couple of these because we haven't played them. Uh, also released was Chroma Gun, which I have an interest in, but I've got too much to play as it is to consider at this point, and I just keep adding to it thanks to peer pressure. Thanks, <laughs> Andrew. I am not um, sorry. <laughs> uh, Tachyon Project, which I haven't even looked at. I don't know what that is. Sorry. Either you know what it is no. it's a video game I presume of some variety um, and then the last one we're going to go on to is Super One More Jump we were provided a couple of codes for this from the guys at SMG Studio Genie uh, and Andrew have been playing it we'll start with Andrew what do you make of this one so far okay well first I want to thank the developers for sending us these codes unsolicited that was really freaking cool uh then I booted the game up, and my immediate thought was, what the heck do any of these buttons do? <laughs> because nothing on the main menu is labeled. Uh, there are three buttons on the main menu. There's a play button, and there's like an eyeball, and there's like like a, a bandwidth bar button. And actually, there's four yeah. buttons, and the last one's a cog. The cog was the options. I figured that out pretty quick. The triangle is obviously the play button. The other two I didn't know. Uh, the eyeball actually unlocks all of the different visual things you can unlock in this game uh, because they, what they've done is they've made a game that you can completely overlay any visual design that you want onto it based on the sets that have been provided by a number of artists on Twitter and it actually puts those artists' names and their picture and their Twitter handle right there in the game, which is a really cool thing. I pretty quickly latched onto like an art style that was like ancient ruins, but with steampunk gears on them. And then I, my character was this little knight with a wheel on the bottom of him. That's the one I've been using the whole time because I just found that really appealing to me. And then uh, the bandwidth bar button actually turned out to be game stats. I think I thought it would be online multiplayer, but uh, once you get past the confounding early presentation it's pretty clear but andy let me ask you a question when you're playing a platformer have you ever gotten frustrated with the necessity to actually move your character uh no you never thought that's just a waste of time why can't you just jump and just play the game and just focus on jumping well that'd be like an endless runner right like super mario run yeah, that, that's kind of how Super One More Jump is. It's not an endless runner, because each level is predefined. It has a beginning and it has an end. But once you go, you go, and you focus entirely on the timing of jumping. So that kind of makes the game basically a rhythm platformer, 
where I think this would be one game where you could learn to play it with a blindfold on and impress the heck out of people because that <laughs> is just the kind of game it is. You're going to be pressing the jump button at the same point to do the same specific moves because the game handles all the movement for you. Uh, so having said that, it's hard as heck. Uh, I would say of all the Switch games I've played, this is the hardest one. Uh, playing through Celeste, the entire game, I died just a little bit over 1,100 times. I have not finished Super One More Jump, and there was a set of three levels where I died over 100 times on the first two levels, and then over 300 times on the third level. That's just a set of three of 96 total levels in this game. This game is really freaking hard, but I really enjoy it. Ginny, what, what about you? What do you think of it? Um, I agree. It is really freaking hard. Um, it is really hard. Um, I probably did not actually get as far um, as Andrew did. I've got 10 levels um, to go. <laughs> yeah, I'm only halfway through the worlds. So I haven't even hit the the levels that a- Andrew is probably struggling with currently. But um, for me, I have played around with the overlays and gone back to the default. Um, I kind of like the cleaner look that it gives but Andrew's correct it is really very much a game that's about rhythm um as someone who loves rhythm games um I have somehow been proven to be incredibly terrible at rhythm platforming um but I think what the game does well is that I never really felt so frustrated that I wanted to just give up and stop playing like as Andrew said you know 100 deaths 300 deaths on one level you just want to keep and you just want to keep trying and I think that the way the game sort of builds that anticipation in you is really, really admirable. So I like the more stripped back basic aesthetic of the default skins for the game. And while it may sound, I guess, like an endless runner, you kind of really only press one button to jump. Um, I think the way the game sort of throws you little wrenches in the plan, like there are little mechanics that kind of swing you back in the opposite direction when you activate them. Um, there are platforms that constantly move as you're moving so you can't really sort of predict ahead as to what you need to do you kind of re- you have to react on the fly as you're experiencing these moving platforms I find that really nice um, but yeah it is a very difficult game um, it is very stripped back um, if you like platformers this is one for you if you don't normally play platformers I don't know if I can recommend this to you just because um, of the difficulty curve and also I guess just how stripped back everything else about it is um i think it'd be really fun to have multiplayer but i think it might get really confusing having two people um, or two pods i guess racing around in the same map uh possibly colliding um possibly not i don't know what they might add but um it is a really neat game from smg studios um and they did did really great with death square the first time around which was a game i think that was accessible to people that are not gamers um, Super One More Jump is probably on the opposite end. <laughs> if you're a gamer, you're going to love this game. If you're not a gamer, you will really not understand why people like Andrew and myself keep bashing our heads against the wall, dying a hundred times or more per level, trying to push on. Um, losing is fun. But yeah, somehow the game makes losing fun and it makes losing a learning experience. So if you've got the time for it um, and the inclination for it, I highly, highly recommend Super One More Jump. Um, it will probably be a long time before I ever beat it, so it will definitely have bang for its buck in that case. Um, and yeah, I'm captivated. I want to keep going. 
Uh, so let's move on to uh, a discussion topic we probably should have had last week, uh, but yeah, we're doing it this week instead. Okay, so the thing I wanted to raise uh, this week was our predictions for 2018. I'm talking game announcements that we don't know about yet that you think will be uh, on the offing at E3 or one of these random directs where they just hit us with a heap of game announcements. Uh, let's start with Andrew. Borderlands 2. <laughs> yes. I think that's a good show. <laughs> and I, I think if Borderlands 3 gets announced this year, absolutely. Handsome Collection on Switch, no doubt, because it's just a great way to market and get people excited for the new game. Um, similarly, I think we'll also see a scenario with Bioshock if, if they announce whatever the new Bioshock is. We'll see a HD remaster come to Switch as well. Well, they've already put out that Borderlands trilogy on PS4 and Xbox One. They could just as easily put that out. And I would probably buy it. (laughs) I totally would. Again. Even if just for 1 and 2. Yeah, you could play Bioshock 1 and 2 and you would have a neat coaster for Bioshock (laughs) Infinite. It's not a disc, Andrew. You can't balance your coffee cup on a tiny little car. (laughs) Yeah, well, this was a joke... That did not reformat well for this format. (laughs) Um, Speaking of... This is just a tangent, but speaking of those Bioshock remasters, also the Arkham series remasters might come. That would be interesting to see. I would like that. Yeah, Arkham City, one of my all-time favorite games. But my other real prediction, uh, I'm actually scooping back from the last episode when I say this, but Resident Evil 4 HD. Yes, please. Mm Mm-hmm. Give it to me. Put it in my eye holes. <laughs> uh, mine, I've got here. I'm, I'm certain we're going to see a Pro Evolution Soccer on the Switch this year. I have no tangible information or inside knowledge into that. I just have a feeling. Uh, partly because when they've made these games for other portable devices back in the day, so PSP... It was almost identical gameplay-wise as the main console versions. I I would love to see that come to Switch, and I think we will. Because I think Konami, while they're not as productive as they used to be, like a good opportunity to make money. You, you only have to look at the uh, Metal Gear Survive, just using the Metal Gear Solid name mm. for that to, to see it. I, I think this will happen. Um, the other one I've got here... and. I don't know what the reaction of you two is going to be, but I reckon we're going to see a 2D Zelda on Switch this year. Really? Um... Yeah, and, and I'm not talking Triforce Hero style. I'm talking a, a full-on 2D Zelda. I would really like Nintendo to revisit the Adventure of Link format. I know everybody hates Adventure of Link. I actually think it's a really good game. I would love to see a modern reinterpretation of Adventure of Link. Hmm... You know what, that, that's the only Zelda game I haven't played and beaten. For shame, Andy. Every week, without fail. Without fail. I can't be blamed for this one, because this is a universally hated game, with the exception of Andrew. So, back off. Oh my <laughs> I can't help it, I'm the only one right about this. Okay, That's not my fault. <laughs> so yeah, so that, those are my two. Uh, what are you thinking, Ginny? What do you think they're going to surprise us with this year? Um, I think Borderlands is a pretty strong, um, strong one to expect. Um, I think in that vein as well, um, maybe the Borderlands Telltale game, maybe even just more Telltale games in general. I think to have 
one out or more out would be really good things like a wolf among us that was really popular um all the walking dead episodes stuff like that maybe even telltale's game of thrones i think the switch can run those no problem and they're quite popular so it'd be a good marketing tactic i think well, I was about to say, I'd, I'd love a full Walking Dead collection once they get the yeah. last season out this year. I'm sure that'll That'd happen. Be cool. But I, I just hope they're cheaper. The Telltale games on Switch oh, yeah. cost $10 more than they do on other platforms. I don't understand That's why. Right. Nintendo tax, remember? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I do wish they were a little bit cheaper as well. But I, I think that um, the price won't make the popularity prohibitive if they do come to the Switch, if more come to the Switch. Um, I wonder if we'll get something like Cuphead ever on the Switch, and that would be quite nice. And I think close enough to its release to still be relevant. Um, otherwise, I'm really, really praying and hoping for Animal Crossing on the Switch, um, and maybe even a Dynasty Warriors game, because I know we've already had Fire Emblem Warriors, and we're going to get Hyrule Warriors. I think it would be smart what? to cash in on the Dynasty Warriors train, especially since Dynasty Warriors 9 is coming out incredibly soon and looks amazing um i know we've got the tech for it we should definitely have one on the switch um a fire emblem game would be great that's not fire emblem warriors i think we're about due for one and it's often always released on nintendo's latest console so i definitely think that we'll get a fire emblem switch game and maybe we'll finally get um smash brothers as well on the switch it's possible anything can happen and maybe a Pokemon game. If not a mainstream one, then definitely a Mystery Dungeon one. So those are my picks, sort of more... Um, the, basically anything that kind of gets pushed out um, on the 3DS, um, or did get pushed out on the 3DS within year one and two. Um, that's what I want on the Switch. Oh yeah, and Luigi's Mansion. <laughs> I think we've had enough Yoshi and Kirby's games. We can definitely have Luigi's Mansion now. I think Nintendo is preparing us for this. I think we've seen enough from the Mario world. Um, I mean, we've had Mario X Rabbids, for God's sake. Like, this is about time for Luigi to shine. I want and demand Luigi's Mansion remastered for the Switch. <laughs> just wonder what bizarre thing they could cross Luigi with. Just something totally out there. Luigi Souls? <laughs> <laughs> Dark Luigi? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we'll make it happen, I'm sure. Uh, so, folks, what are we playing this coming week? Lost Sphere. Um, I'm probably going to try and bang out the rest of Celeste. And I'm going to keep struggling <laughs> through um, Super One More Jump because I'm a masochist and I love that game. So those three will be my main focuses, I believe. Uh, Night in the Woods is out on Thursday. So, oh. yeah. Oh, no more games. Oh, okay. Maybe I'll have to amend that list to include Night in the Woods. Oh, god damn it. The ride never ends, Andy. The ride never ends. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. And um, the original SteamWorld Dig is also out on Thursday. I've already played that on Wii U, but I'm probably going to get it for Switch too. <laughs> Uh, depending upon what the price is, I don't think they've announced the price yet, but uh, hopefully it isn't more than ten bucks. I think you're going to be disappointed. Though. I think yeah. I am too. Uh, <laughs> and I'm going to be playing Lost Sphere. I'm determined to get it done in one go. I'm going to finish Rayman Legends in between. And I forgot to mention last week, but I also picked up Battle Chef Brigade. Yay! Uh, I I actually got the wife uh, switch 
uh, sorry, an eShop credit card so she could get it and I watched her play it and I was like, okay, I think I want to play this. So yeah, I'm going to try bang that out before we hit the next beta releases. Nice. So thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Switch Focus Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a review on iTunes because it really, really will help to get us noticed. Um, you can also listen and subscribe on Stitcher, TuneIn, and other podcast services. We also have a YouTube channel um, where the good folk Andrew and Andy regularly upload the first hour of many of the games that they play. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, and at switchfocuspodcast.com for updates, news, and other content. If you want to support the show, you can now buy us a coffee. Um, we'll leave the details on our website and also on our Discord channel, which we will link in the show notes. So you can follow us individually. Um, Andy is at Flame Roast Toast. Andrew is at Play Critically, and I am Ginny at Ginny Woes. Mm-hmm.